Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So this is Exodus 32 that we're reading from today. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be there will be a festival to the Lord so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry then the Lord said to Moses go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt they've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who you brought up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, It was the evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your face anger, relent and do not bring disaster in your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it powder, scattered it in the water and made the Israelites drink it. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I have spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Thanks, Katie. Great. We're gonna. I'm gonna hand over to. I'll pray and hand over to Tim. And uh, cool. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, striking, uh, perplexing, but Lord, your word. And I pray you speak to us from it. And you'd be with Tim, uh, that he would um, yeah, speak to us clearly and faithfully, and that we would be uh, open to receive and to hear. In your name, Amen. Thanks, Steve. Um, cool. So some of you uh, may know <clears throat> my job is a youth worker. And at work, we do lots of different activities with the youth as a way to help us build relationship. 
um, and, and to get to know them and then to be able to help them in the kind of crucial aspects of their life that we need to help them with. One such activity that we do is, is called Giddy Studios, which is located, located in Dundrum Shopping Centre. And it's like a, uh, you decorate ceramics. I don't know how else to describe it. You kind of paint them, you then put them in an oven, and then a week later they come out perfectly glazed and decorated and it's a plate or a bowl or a mug or whatever. Does everyone understand what that is? Yes? Perfect. So there's one young man I went with, um, maybe 11, and I took him here, and we, uh, I paid for him to decorate a mug. And about five minutes in, he was taking his time, and I was like, I'm actually bored. So I, I called the person over. I was like, can I do one as well? So that was fine. So for the next 45 minutes to an hour, we made these different mugs. Um, you hand them up to them, kind of unfurnished, unfinished, and you come back a week later. So we came back a week later. And, the, and I told them my name. I said, you know, this is Tim Extern. That's the name of the company. She went into the back. She got this brown paper bag, and she found the two mugs that we, we paid for. And it was a brown paper bag, and I'm uh, symbolizing by this bag. And she dipped into the bag, and she brought out the first mug. Okay? And it was this mug. And she saw it. And she saw the little boy, and she started to go like this. And I knew something she didn't. <laughs> I knew that this was my mug. <laughs> And I went to say to the child, don't say anything. And of course the child was like, that's not my mug. I have never seen a woman more mortified in my life. She was devastated, okay? And it was so, like, I mean, she properly got into it. I mean, if you've ever been to Giddy Studios, it's properly enthusiastic staff. She just, she, at first glance, she just thought, this must be the boys. And she properly started doing the fishing thing. It was unbelievable. It was so funny. And I really appreciated, yeah, just how mortified it was. At first glance, it must have appeared to her and in all fairness to her, actually, if she'd looked at the second mug, she probably would have thought the, boys the boy did both mugs. <laughs> but at first glance, it was so obvious to her that the shark mug was the boy's, okay? So obvious. And, and I think the temptation is similar for us with this story. Um, the temptation um, with us with this story of the golden calf um, is that at the first glance, it seems so obvious that this story is all about the outrageous sinfulness and faithlessness of the Israelites who just after being rescued from Egypt almost immediately forget the almighty God who delivered them out of slavery and instead turn to worship a worthless man-made idol of a calf. However, if we were to delve deeper into the story of the golden calf, um, we realize that at its heart there is a huge question. And this is the question. Can a holy God live amongst a sinful people? And can a sinful people cope with having a holy God living among them, okay? The story of the golden calf reveals this tension between the Israelites who can't live with the holy God, but nor can they cope without him. No, uh, Moses nobly attempts to solve this t tension and intercede between God and his people, the Israelites. However, the reality, as we will discover, that this tension, this question of how a holy God and a sinful people can be fully reconciled is only answered in the person of Jesus, okay? So that's where we're going with this, this story of the golden calf. First of all, though, we have to look at the significance of the golden calf. Like I said, at first glance, it may appear one thing, but we still have to delve into it at some depth. Number one, with the golden calf, the Israelites were impatient, okay? Like we heard from Katie there, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. They were impatient, okay? Secondly, they wanted a visible God, okay? They created a golden calf, or a young bull, it says, which symbolizes strength and fert fertility. 
And it states that the Israelites, in effect, would have had a massive orgy during their worship of this golden calf, linked to its kind of fertility um, symbolization, okay? So this was an utter, utter rejection of Yahweh, of their God, of God. The God who had poured himself out for his people and rescued them from horrific slavery by the Egyptians. And we learn, as we're going through this book, the entire crux the entire purpose of the Exodus story was to reunite the Israelites with their God. And almost immediately, it seems like at the first chance they have, they reject this and instead to turn to worship a pitiful man-made idol. Okay? It's, yeah, it seems mind-blowing how quick they turn. And not only was this idolatry, uh, worship of an idol, it was adulterous and, and I recognize that, you know, I'm trying to navigate between the two without them sounding the same. So idolatry is an idol, a thing that you worship. Adulterous is like breaking a marriage covenant or making a, breaking a marriage vow. So it says in Exodus 24, a covenant was made between God and his people. But by worshiping the golden calf, not only are they committing idolatry, worshiping an idol, they're also committing adultery. <laughs> Adultery, adultery, or whatever it's called, right? They are breaking the covenant, the vow, the marriage, and they're rejecting God to love another, okay? This is undoubtedly a grave sin. It's, it's huge. It's on every level. This is massive. And my initial reaction, and I've already hinted at that when reading the account, I mean, I've heard of it, but again, rereading it, um, uh, The Golden Calf, was one of disbelief. I think shock almost. How could the Israelites turn to a worthless, pitiful, man-made idol so soon after being rescued out of Egypt by a mighty God? And on the day that they do this, they would have received manna from heaven to sustain them. How ungrateful can you get? Um, so yeah, I guess my initial reaction was just shock, disbelief that they could do this. And then something strange happened. I actually began to justify their actions. And I thought actually... <laughs> maybe through my own lens of my own selfishness, they weren't that bad. And I thought, actually, I've been rescued from far greater than just out of physical slavery. You know, I've been granted eternal life and spiritual freedom. And yet, how quick am I to forget what God has done for me? And my understanding is manna is fairly boring. I think it, was just, it just sustained you. It wasn't an exciting meal. Admittedly, they were provided at miraculously every day, but every day of my life, I am provided far more than just boring manna. I have been given outrageous provision in every facet of my life in terms of health, wealth, home, family, friends, career, etc. And how quickly am I to forget these blessings and how quickly am I to, to, to move on from them? So, initial reaction, shock, disbelief, just suddenly going, oh, maybe they're not that bad. But actually, that second reaction only reveals my own sinfulness. My own complete and utter ingratitude to God and highlights that I deserve the full wrath of God just like the Israelites do in this scenario. That's the reality. As God states, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. What they deserve, what I deserve. So we now have this crucial moment in history where the Israelites are about to be wiped out by God. Um, and the Israelites are about to be destroyed because of their sin. But this doesn't happen. And we have to ask, why? And the answer is because of the crucial intervention and intercession of Moses in uh, chapter 32, verse 11. Moses prays to God on behalf of his people, and he does a number of things. Number one, he appeals to God's self-chosen relationship with the Israelites. 
He, number two, he reminds God of what he's already done to rescue his covenant people. Verse 12, he appeals to God to vindicate his own name. Why would you bring them out of Egypt? Why would you bring them out of slavery just to have them slaughtered and have the whole world laugh at them? And finally, he reminds God of his patriarchal promises that he made to Abraham. Okay, so he, he does all these things. He prays, he intercedes on behalf of his people with God. And after this intercessory prayer by Moses, it states, Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, there is a huge um, theological debate <laughs> that centers around this exchange between God and Moses and about mainly God's sovereignty. And the question comes down to, can a man change the mind of God? And I'm not going to be able to do that justice, actually, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, although I did think Danny may be able to go into greater depth with that after the service in the seminar, which is the definition of a, a hospital pass. Um, because it, it is. For every one scholar that's like, you can never change the mind of God, there's another one here saying, you know, you very much can change the mind of God. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, it's a massive debate. I mean, it's, yeah. Um, so maybe Danny, if you are really interested in that, can delve into that a bit deeper. However, for me... I think it is very important to note that I truly believe God is entirely sovereign, um, but he also wants us to fully participate and engage. He wants us to stand up and be counted, and through prayer, to seek his will and his influence in whatever uh, situation we find ourselves in. And I was, I was struggling, because like I say, actually, all this back and forth ping pong between these different scholarly groups just wrecked my head, and I thought, yeah, I'm not interested in that. But what, what really interested me was the book of Esther. And I remembered this, and this is one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. The book of Esther demonstrates this tension between a sovereign God, but who also wants us to be participating fully. The, the cousin of Esther, Mordecai, has just uncovered a plot to slaughter all of the Jews, and he comes to her. She, at this moment, she is the queen of the entire uh, Persian Empire, and he says to her in chapter 4, For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Um, and we, we find out in the story of Queen Esther, she could have remained silent, but God still would have rescued his people. That's the reality. You know, that's what he says, Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. However, Esther is courageous, and as the story progresses, she does use her royal position to save the Jews. And for me, in some ways, that answers the question. God is completely and utterly sovereign. He is in charge, but he wants us, in whatever he's blessed us in, in whatever role we can, to fully engage with him, to fully seek his will, and to influence it for his good. So, that's, yeah, back to Exodus, I guess. God has relented and de decided that he will not destroy the Israelites after Moses' intercession. Moses now comes down the mountain to the camp of the Israelites. His anger burns at the scenes of idol worship and the orgy, and he destroys the two tablets at the foot of the mountain. He then, as we heard, he destroys the calf, grinds it up, and forces the Israelites to drink it. He saw that the camp had descended into utter chaos. It says he stood at the entrance and he demanded to know who is for Yahweh. And a tribe came to him. The Levites answer the rally call. They are tooled up. They're given swords. They are sent through the camp by Moses and they slaughter 3,000 Israelites. 
And a lot of the commentaries suggest that basically it was the ones that he ground up the calf for, those are the ones who drink it, and those are the ones who are most at fault and most guilty for this horrific sin of idolatry and adultery against God. And it says that the Levites are rewarded for their loyalty to God and set apart as a priestly tribe. So, although the most guilty, this 3,000, the ringleaders, so to speak, have been slaughtered, Moses still goes up, and he goes up once again to the mountain to meet with God and to intercede on behalf of the people who were all guilty by virtue of their idol worship and engaging in the orgy, okay? So we, we see this next exchange in chapter 32, 30 to 35. Moses asks God to forgive the people for their sins and states, if not then, blot me out of the book you have written, okay? And what that book is, because it's a bit confusing, is referring to the book of life, okay? And in essence, in this exchange during the second intercession, he is asking God to take his life and spare that of the people, okay? Moses is saying to God, forgive this evil and wicked people, and if you're not going to forgive them, then take the punishment on me. Let me die so that these people can be spared. God rejects Moses' offer. Moses does not have the necessary capital to pay the penalty for the sin of the people. Instead, God reiterates that there will be consequences for the sins of the people. He will blot out those who have sinned against him. He sends a plague amongst the people. And then in chapter 33, verse 3, we find out he will withhold his presence from them. He tells them, go up to the land, flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. And so we see the inevitable consequences of sin is demonstrated in this new remoteness of God symbolized by the meeting tent, okay? And I'll explain that now. The whole purpose of Exodus, as mentioned earlier, was for God and his people to be reunited. In Exodus 25, God states, I will dwell amongst them. And then obviously, fast forward a few chapters after the golden calf, he's now saying, I will not go with you. A tabernacle is meant to be built so that God can dwell amongst his people. But now, the meeting tent is now set outside the camp, and it is here that God will meet with Moses, okay? So there's huge consequences for the people's sin. Those, yet that sinned against him have been blotted out, will be blotted out. He sends a plague, and then he withholds his presence from them. So we learn a sinful people can't live with God. He is too holy. He is a consuming fire, and he is completely incompatible with sin. And he says that earlier, you know, I can't go with you. My rage will, will burn out and destroy you. So the Israelites can't live with him, cannot live with God. And I think for me, growing up in this kind of generation, I don't know if that holiness of God is something that I fully grasped. It's something that we often miss. Um, as with another young man that I work with, he is a, a, a real character. Uh, he's uh, 16, he's homeless living in an emergency hostel in the city center, and we were going to the cinema one day, and we had to wait for the cinema to start, um, so to kill some time, I thought, I'll bring him to a pet shop, it was a, it was a big mistake, and he's a very energetic young man, he's very um, charismatic, all these sorts of things, and anywhere we go, 
um, heads turn. You, you just, people are fascinated by him. And he's aggressive in his body language. Everything about this. Everyone notices him. So he marches into the pet shop with me. And he marches up to the parrot in a cage. And he demands to know if it speaks. And the staff reply that it says hello. And the young man says, hello, <laughs> hello, hello. Starts screaming at this bird. And I'm already going, oh, this is painful. And I'm just like, oh, you know, just, just, you know. But anyways, he keeps on doing that. And then he does something I'll never forget. He goes, uh, it's so funny. He goes, H-E-L-O, hello. <laughs> and I was mortified. I was just like, how do I disappear? How do I get out of this situation? It was, it was as, almost as mortifying as the woman with the, the mug. It was awful. I, I couldn't believe it. And this poor kid, he had no clue. He didn't, he didn't recognize what was funny. He didn't recognize that he didn't know how to spell the word um, hello. And he gave up on the parrot and we went down to the, thankfully, to the lizards and stuff that's down below. So we got some escape. But at this moment, all I could think of was something was missing for this child. Something had failed him. His education, you know, was missing. It had it, 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 it cruelly let him down and something so crucial he had missed. And, you know, it was... It is significant. One letter is significant. H-E-L-O is very significant when that's screamed at the top of your lungs and you're standing beside someone you're associated versus H-E-L-L-O. You know, it is significant, even just that one letter. And I tell this story because I think for me, it highlights how often we can actually forget the qualities of God and especially that holiness, you know? So I think if we were talking about God, people would love to use the words merciful, gracious, forgiving, kind, patient, all of these beautiful um, loving, you know, all, all of these things. And yet, just like H-E-L-O, sometimes we forget such a crucial part of God's character. And we've forgotten, and we do forget, how holy, how holy He is. We cannot afford to take Him lightly. The God of Exodus is the same God of today. And again, that's a big kind of debate. People always, you know, you'll always hear, the new, I don't believe in the New Testament God, you know, or the Old Testament God, you know, I really love the New Testament God, all this sort of stuff. But the reality is the God of Exodus, the God in those stories, the God who, um, who, who, who does all that is the same God today. So what hope do we have? If God is too holy to be amongst a sinful people, which we are, undoubtedly, and if we can't live without him, because just like the Israelites, all we're left with is worthless, man-made, pathetic idols, what is the answer? How can a holy God live amongst a sinful people? And how can a sinful people withstand the presence of a holy God? The answer, uh, the answer is Jesus. Forgiveness and punishment, mercy and justice, grace and truth meet in Jesus. We can't live without God. And through Christ, we don't have to. The means of atonement Moses offered, substituting himself for his people, which God did not accept, is what Jesus was able to do. Moses did not have the capital. He was not a perfect, blameless, spotless sacrifice, which is the required penalty for sin. He could not. He didn't have the capital. He just couldn't. He could not atone for the people's sin. And there was consequences. We've mentioned it before. And in total, not one of that generation made it to the promised land. Okay? So Moses could only imperfectly uh, intercess. He could not. He cannot take the people's sin. But we do know of one man who, whose life gave life to the many, to everyone. Jesus did pay the penalty 
because he was guilty. Jesus was guilty in the sense that he took all of our sin and was guilty for us. And he was the ultimate, perfect, blameless sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath against all sin. Um, having paid our debts of sin and enabling us to annoy God's presence, Jesus now, as the ultimate high priest, intercedes on our behalf, as actually uh, Steve mentioned earlier. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of, throne of grace with confidence. And I'm going to finish up here. The story of the golden calf is the story of a holy God. It is not the nature of God that has changed. He is still holy and completely incompatible with sin. Rather, a mediator has come by God's design, who is stated in 2 Corinthians 5, had no sin to be sin for us, Jesus. And through Jesus, a holy God and a, a sinful people can be fully reconciled. I'm just going to hand over to Steve. Thanks, Tim. Do you want to stand? We're going to sing and just take a moment. Let's pray. I want us to think about how we're going to apply this to our lives. And I want us to think about uh, where we might take God lightly. That's what the Israelites did, didn't they? So let's just take a moment. Earlier on in the service, we thought about how God could help us and would be where we need Him. But uh, we mustn't presume on Him. And uh, where is there idolatry in our lives? Where is there adultery in the sense that we're loving other gods ahead of, of, of Jesus? And let's come with gratitude for what Jesus has done. So let's take a moment and be quiet and let these things sink in and then I'll pray.